The sermon series is called Major Lessons from the Minor Prophets. Major Lessons from the Minor Prophets. And again, I've made these points before. I'll make them again. They're called Minor Prophets, not because they're less important, but because they're just actually shorter. Uh, it's also, we also, or theologians have referred to the Minor Prophets as the Book of the Twelve, because there's 12 of these uh, minor prophetical books. And uh, usually they're speaking to Judah uh, and Israel, and they're usually calling them back to faithfulness in God. And so we've looked through all these books. We have three more weeks to go, including today, and then we're going to wrap up this sermon series. Today we're actually going to be looking at the book of Haggai and his message to the Israelites. Before we do that, though, let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, thank you so much um, for the people here um, of Seven Hills Fellowship. I pray, Father, that that today um, that they would experience you, whether that's um, through worship or through a passage of Scripture, Father, or through a conversation with someone in this room, Father, or simply an experience of you through the presence of your Holy Spirit, Father. It is my prayer and my request that no one would leave this place today without having had a life-changing encounter with you, the living God. Father, I pray that you would do this um, for your glory and for your honor, but I pray that you would do it also for the good of your people, Father. I pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm not sure how many of you guys got introduced to poetry, and I don't mean musical poetry, but I mean sort of poetry is the written and spoken word, but I was introduced to poetry probably as far as I know anyway, maybe first from J.R.R. Tolkien, maybe from C.S. Lewis, but eventually the person that really came to define poetry for me was a man named Shel Silverstein. Not sure if any of you guys are familiar with Shel Silverstein, but he wrote a book called Where, Where the Sidewalk Ends and any number of other different collections of poetry usually written for kids. Now, I'm going to read one of his poems today. Some of you guys have heard of this poem before. You've actually heard it. It might remind you of when you were in elementary school, but it's called Sick, and it's going to actually introduce um, the theme uh, or one of the themes of the book of Haggai that we're going to be dealing with today. And so if you will um, afford me the opportunity to read poetry to you publicly, I appreciate it. It's just too bad we're not a coffee house. All right, here's the poem. I cannot go to school today, said little Peggy Ann McKay. I have the measles and the mumps, a gash, a rash, and purple bumps. My mouth is wet, my throat is dry, I'm going blind in my right eye. My tonsils are as big as rocks, I've counted 16 chicken pox, and there's one more, that's 17, and don't you think my face looks green? My leg is cut, my eyes are blue, it might be instamatic flu. I cough and sneeze and gasp and choke, I'm sure that my left leg is broke. My hip hurts when I move my chin, my belly button's caving in. My back is wrenched, my ankle sprained, my appendix pains each time it rains. My nose is cold, my toes are numb, I have a sliver in my thumb. My neck is stiff, my voice is weak, I hardly whisper when I speak. My tongue is filling up my mouth, I think my hair is falling out. My elbow's bent, my spine ain't straight, my temperature is 108. My brain is shrunk, I cannot hear, there is a hole inside my ear. I have a hangnail, and my heart is, what? What is that? What's that you say? You say today is Saturday? Goodbye, I'm going out to play. <laughs> Obviously, it's written for kids because young people understand exactly what's going on with that poem. Now, I'm using this as an illustration, of course, to introduce some of the themes from Haggai. But what I'm going to argue here is that many of us, like Peggy Ann McKay, who we just read about, and like the Israelites to whom Haggai is writing, are experiencing symptoms. And those symptoms that the Israelites were experiencing and that some of us 
experience uh, today in this very room, they reveal some sort of a sickness, some sort of a, a brokenness within us, something that's wrong in our lives. And when we become aware of these symptoms, it's logical to not only look for the cause of those symptoms, but then to look for the cure as well. That's what Haggai is all about. Let's take a look at the book of Haggai now and see what help we can find there. First thing that we see in the book of Haggai is the symptoms of spiritual sickness. And so what he draws our attention to, and he draws attention to the Israelites, is their symptoms of spiritual sickness. We're going to look at a little bit of verse 1, chapter 1, and a little little bit of chapter 2, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. In other words, consider how you're living life. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Now to chapter 2, verse 15. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. So here are all of these symptoms. In these two passages from the book of Haggai, the Israelites have the following symptoms. I'll recount them. Lack of productivity, gnawing hunger. They're thirsty. They're cold. They're experiencing poverty. They're experiencing a lack of fulfillment. They're experiencing vocational dissatisfaction. They're experiencing drought and depression. It seems like they should have enough for all of their needs, but they keep coming up short over and over and over again. These symptoms are all signs that something is deeply wrong, as maybe that is also a sign that something is deeply wrong. (laughs) What's strange about their illness is that it appears that they're actually doing many of the right things. They've been working. We're told that they've sown much. It says that they've been eating and drinking, but they're still hungry and thirsty. They're dressing warmly, but they're always cold. They're saving and investing, but instead of increasing in wealth, it looks like they're becoming poorer. Again, they're doing good things. They seem to be doing many of the right things, but something is not working. Something is wrong. How many of you can identify with the Israelites to whom Haggai is writing? Maybe you've been working harder and harder, more and more, but it seems like you're able to save less and less. Maybe you're consuming and consuming and consuming, whether that's food or technology or vacation, who knows what it is, you're consuming more and more and more, but you feel ever more empty inside. Maybe you're investing, you're investing financially, you're investing relationally, maybe you're investing physically only to have little or no return for your labor. Maybe you've had all these expectations for yourself or for your family or for your business or for your relationships only to have reality fall far short of your expectations. And maybe in spite of all your efforts, you still feel empty, lonely, and hollow. Maybe this resonates with some of you this morning. Maybe some of you feel a deep dissatisfaction. Maybe some of you feel a deep emptiness. 
remember, our symptoms serve a valuable purpose. They reveal to us when something is wrong. It's up to us then to ask what might be going on. Even God recommends that of the Israelites. Consider your ways. Now, we would all do well to pay attention to our symptoms, whether they're physical or emotional or spiritual, because they inevitably point us to a cause. And that's what we see next in Haggai's letter to the Israelites. He, sees, he lists the cause of their spiritual sickness. Again, we're going to look at several verses from chapter 1 here. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you, to, for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock and all the labor of your hands." Recently, doctors have discovered that many people struggle from a lack of vitamin D due to any number of reasons, but one of those reasons is an indoor or sedentary lifestyle. From the NIH website, I'm going to read the following about vitamin D deficiency. Vitamin D deficiency can lead to an array of problems, most notably rickets, which is a weakened skeleton usually among children, and osteoporosis in adults. The fortification of milk with vitamin D in the 1930s was effective in eradicating rickets in the world. However, vitamin D deficiency is now more prevalent than ever and should be screened in high-risk populations. This is what the website says. Many studies are now showing an association between vitamin D deficiency and cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, autoimmune disease, and depression. There's also new research that shows a likely correlation between vitamin D and reduced risk of Alzheimer's and dementia. 50% of Americans, according to the NIH, do not get enough vitamin D. In the case of the Israelites to whom Haggai is writing, the cause of their sickness is also a deficit. They're missing something that they need. They're lacking something that their entire self requires. As we've already seen, the Israelites have been doing the right things. They've been saving, they've been working, they've been eating and drinking, but they're not full, they're not satisfied. They're experiencing deep emptiness, a deep dissatisfaction with life. Why? Because something is missing. They're experiencing a deficit. Verse 9 very clearly tells us what that deficit is. It says this, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own home. Now, if you didn't know the context of the book of Haggai, you might wonder why God is being so stern with His people, like, hey, isn't that a little tough? But the historical backdrop of Haggai gives us a little bit of insight into this situation. The historical backdrop is that Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and then Babylon had deported um, most or many of the Israelites throughout uh, their kingdom in order that they would lose their Jewish identity. Sometime later, Persia overthrew Babylon and allowed the Israelites to return home. It was about 60 years later. 
In 538 BC, Darius, who was the king of Persia, issued an edict that the Israelites were to be allowed to not only rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but to rebuild the temple as well. And they originally began that work with energy and with excitement, but two years into the project on the temple, that work rebuilding the temple, um, it had come to a halt. And there are any number of different reasons for why that was, but suffice it to say, the, the temple was not being rebuilt. And by the time God sent Haggai to speak to the people of Israel, it had been 16 years since any work on the temple had been done. And so for 16 years, the Israelites had lived their lives. For 16 years, they had planted, they had harvested, they'd built their homes, they'd built their families, they'd built their businesses while the temple lay in disrepair. And despite all their focus on their personal lives and their personal interests, investing in themselves and their education and their families and all these good things, what they were experiencing was a deep emptiness, a deep dissatisfaction with life. And I think there are two ways to look at this phenomenon. First, I would argue that God loves His people too much to allow them to continue in self-destructive behavior. And so in this case, uh, God intervened and took action. Verse 9 tells us this, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. In other words, I was active in your dissatisfaction. I was active in your misery. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. And so God, like a good parent, knows that allowing your children to develop unhealthy patterns is ultimately unloving to them in the end. Does that make sense? Like that's that's kind of the goal of discipline. The goal of discipline is to turn your kids from this way, that way, towards a flourishing life. And God knows that after 16 years, the Israelites were headed in a very destructive direction, and so He grab, jumps in to grab their attention. The author of Hebrews affirms this principle when he quotes Proverbs 3, and what we see in Proverbs 3 is that God disciplines those that He loves. In verse 11 of Hebrews 12, the author goes on to say even more. I'm going to read verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. What is God's goal for those that He loves in their discipline? His goal is righteousness and peace. Righteousness means living a life of integrity. It means living a life of wholeness. That life of integrity and wholeness trickles out to the greater culture and the greater community and creates more righteousness and justice and goodness. What is the goal of that discipline? That goal is peace. And peace is not only the absence of conflict, but it's actually calmness and understanding that God is in charge even in times of trouble. Righteousness and peace is God's goal in His discipline of us. He is like a good father. He loves us too much to continue down a self-destructive path. That's one way to look at this. There's a second way to look at this passage too and this phenomenon, and it's to realize that human beings are created to live lives of balance. Let me say that one more time. We're created to live lives of balance. I had a Bible professor at Covenant College when I was there 30 plus years ago, and he used to say the missing beatitude is blessed are the balanced. Blessed are the balanced. What we understand is that we need a certain amount of sleep and we need a certain amount of water. We need a certain amount of protein, a certain amount of fruit, a certain amount of vegetables. We need sunlight. We need vocation. We need rest. And so many of our issues in life come from being out of balance. We kind of know that 
intuitively, whether we're talking about our diet or our rest or our work-life balance. When the human machine is out of balance, we end up suffering the consequences of that imbalance. That's definitely the case here. In this case, the Israelites were seeking their own well-being, but they weren't seeking God. Their behavior demonstrated that they cared more about their personal comfort than they did about the glory of the Creator and their covenant God. Their hearts and their lives were out of order. Their hearts and their lives were imbalanced. If you will, they were experiencing emptiness and dissatisfaction in the rest of their lives as a result. We should easily be able to understand exactly what is being described here in the book of Haggai. Augustine, St. Augustine, called this malady restlessness in perhaps his most famous quote when he wrote this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Let me read that one more time. This is from St. Augustine. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. God knows that the only way for us to find rest and peace and wholeness is when we begin with Him because we were created for Him. French mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal made a similar observation when he wrote the following, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. In other words, there is this God-shaped vacuum, and it, not the created things they might fit in there, but they don't fill up that void completely by any means. In fact, when we try to fill that God-shaped void with those good created things, with work, with family, with exercise, with food, with vacation, with beauty, all those things, they don't fit. In fact, they make us feel more empty inside. There's an old Hungarian proverb which says this, you always fall off one side of the horse or the other. You always fall off one side of the horse or the other. And the implication is that as human beings, we're always falling out of balance in life. We, maybe we work too much, and we know what happens when that occurs, even if it wasn't us. Maybe it was a father, maybe it was a mother, a friend. What happens when we work too much is we sacrifice our families. We sacrifice our physical and mental health. We burn out. But we can also overindulge on the other side as well. Many of us who are growing up in this technological age of Netflix and Instagram and YouTube are more likely, in the words of Neil Postman, we're more likely amusing ourselves to death, right? That's probably more likely what most of us are doing. We're probably indulging in so much fun stuff and so much rest and so much of all this kind of stuff that it's actually, it's actually destroying us. Many of you in the room this morning know exactly what that feels like. My guess is that very few, if any of us, are actually guilty of spending too much time with God, right? There's probably very, very few people that might fall into that category. I think it's far more likely that we're guilty of exactly the same thing as the Israelites to whom Haggai is writing. They're suffering, and we're suffering as well. And so the question is, if that's the cause, what should we do? That's the next thing that Haggai talks about. And so that's our third point, the cure for this spiritual sickness. Again, I'm going to read a section of Scripture. And the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord, then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord steered up, stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jezodak, 
the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people, they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. As with each of the minor prophets, there's so much that could be said about the cures for the ills. But what we see here is that we see the people actually repent and they obey. And so verse 12, chapter 1 of chapter 1 tells us, then Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. But what was their obedience rooted in? I think that's the question. The end of verse 12 seems to indicate that their obedience was rooted in fear. We read there, and the people feared the Lord, and the people feared the Lord. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, then many of us will admit that often our obedience to God flows out of fear as well. We're scared that if we don't obey Him, then we'll go to hell. Or we're scared that if we don't obey Him, then God will harm us or harm our families, or He'll bring some tragedy upon us. And if that's the way we relate to God, then our obedience is almost guaranteed to be short-lived. If we believe that God is some sort of a malevolent cosmic being, then we are likely to be like the younger brother in Jesus' parable in that we'll just wait for the right time and then we will make a break for it and we will escape. Or maybe we'll be more like the older brother in Jesus' parable in in that we'll attempt to bribe God with our good behavior in order to keep Him at a distance because He's scary, right? So we'll bribe Him and try to keep Him off our backs. We've probably honestly got plenty of both of those groups of people in the room this morning. And if I'm honest with you, I would admit that there are times where I find myself in both of those camps, sometimes trying to escape from God, sometimes trying to bribe Him with my good behavior. I think what's clear is that that's not the kind of relationship that God wants with His children. It's not the kind of relationship that any parent really wants with their children. Listen to how God ultimately responds to the people after their obedience. Verse 4 says this, but now be strong, Zerubbabel declares the Lord, be strong, Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So three times in these sections, God reminds the Israelites that He is with them. Three times He encourages them to be strong, and finally God tells them not to be afraid. Our work, our lives, our care for our family, our pursuit of God shouldn't flow ultimately out of fear, but rather out of an experience of God's goodness and God's grace. We need to hear God say to us this morning, do not fear. So, what should we take away from the book of Haggai? First, I think we need to examine our own symptoms of emptiness and dissatisfaction in life, and we need to see if we aren't suffering from a self-inflicted distance from God. That is absolutely what Satan will tempt us towards, and it happens so easily. There's so many great podcasts to listen to, Kids' sports dominate evenings and weekends. Self-care is a legitimate need. We need to remember, however, that God longs to be with us, and He longs to bless us. And it's only when we seek Him first that we will be truly satisfied. Remember the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus said, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first His kingdom 
and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. God says, put me first, and I'll take care of the rest. In fact, the Bible is clear over and over again that he will give us more than we could need, more than we could ask, more than we could imagine. That's number one. What's the second thing to take away from the book of Haggai? I think the second thing we need to receive from the book of Haggai is the grace that is offered therein. We need to hear God say, do not fear. I'm still here. I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere. I love you. The appropriate fuel for obedience isn't fear. It's the love of a heavenly father. We see that love most clearly through God's pursuit of us through His Son who came to seek and to save those who are wandering and those who are lost. Hear the words of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life.